Hi everyone, welcome to Inner Voice. My name is Misumi Rostad, and I'm the viola player of the Pacifica Quartet. Judy Sherman is our producer, and she is just amazing. <laughs> we recorded this conversation at the end of a very long day of recording, actually. I want to say a huge congratulations to Judy for winning the 2012 Grammy for Classical Producer of the Year. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Judy. I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here, I think. <laughs> we'll find out, right? <laughs> I actually wanted to just start out by saying that I, I'm getting a real kick out of the fact that I'm getting to hold a microphone to you for a change. <laughs> I'm sure you are. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people don't really know what a producer does. So would you mind just telling us a little bit about your life as a producer? And maybe, I mean, I guess the easiest thing maybe even would be to start with um, the recording today. Well, let me just give a, an overview. I'm in charge of, from the time somebody decides these people are going to record this music for everything from there to delivering a final master, most of the time. I don't always have to do everything in between, depends. That means arranging a hall or setting dates and getting everybody together in one place at one time. It means setting microphones, getting a sound, choosing the microphones, deciding where they go, and then with the musician's feedback, coming up with how is this CD going to sound. That's my engineering hat. When we have that all together, I take off that hat, I put on the producer hat, and then I'm in charge of running the session, which means I'm in charge of what notes are going to go on the CD. It means guiding the session so that we get everything that is needed before everybody falls off their chairs with fatigue, unlike today when everybody did fall off the chairs with, with fatigue, um, and just deciding how long the takes are going to be, what do we need, how are we going to get it. As you know, I prefer working in big, long takes, working on getting the music, and then if we have to plug in a detail, we plug in a detail, and then move on. After that, I listen through everything, and comparison shop, which is the most beautiful playing of this melody, uh, what's the most in tune and together, what's the most exciting, what's the most whatever in each case. I think of editing as stringing pearls. This is the most galvanizing introduction, so great. Then, well, now we're going into the first theme, what's the best performance of it? Comparison shop, that's okay, string that pearl. And so on and so forth, down the line. And then that gets sent off to the musicians who then pick at it. And then I'll go through and find something to solve the problems that they've brought up. And eventually is made into a master and goes to the plant. And I, I do not have anything to do with the package. That Thank heavens, I don't have to deal with liner notes or color separation or any of that stuff. So that's what I do. I actually wanted to just speak to um, what you said about stringing pearls together. It's interesting, actually, how much it feels like our performance changes after <laughs> it's like a coaching with you. <laughs> you know, and we, it's, it's interesting just to have your wonderful set of ears that helps guide us towards what's working for us and what's not. And I think after the recording process, we always sound a lot better. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people have said, would you come to our rehearsals? Um, so you've been in this business for a while, in this recording business. And actually, how long have you been in this business? 
almost 40, 40 years. Wow, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, so in, in 40 years, I mean, you've, uh, the other day you said, okay, well, let's start the tape over again or something like that. And it's, so, so much has changed. We've gone from reel to reel or tape to, to that to, to digital. And so a lot has changed, right? What has changed? Well, I have to tell you, I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Charles O'Connell who ran RCA Red Seal from 1930 to 1944. And then in 1947, he published this book talking about all the various artists he's worked with and sort of dishing, you know. <laughs> so there's Tuscanini and there's Heifetz and there's Rubinstein and the um, Ormandy and so on and so forth. Never once in all of this does he say, oh, we used to have to record this way. They're recording to wax. They can record three minutes at a time, and as it comes out is as it comes out. He never really explains that. It's in between the lines because he can't imagine any other way of recording. And by 1944, that was what there was. It went to wax, and then you had to plate the wax really quickly because it melts, you know, it starts deteriorating right away. It's not even acetate. Maybe by then it was acetate. But that also evaporates. So what's also interesting is how important classical musicians were at the time and what huge careers they had. And Lily Pons, for instance, just being mobbed by people and, and the kinds of salaries they commanded. Max Wilcox once told me that Arthur Rubinstein, at one point, was earning about a quarter of a million dollars a year in royalties from his recordings, and that was in like 1956 dollars. So, wow. yeah, so it's a very different world now for classical musicians. Do you think that was a good thing, that the salaries were so high, or do you think that maybe that was part of an abuse of the system? Well, Charles O'Connell explains that Red Seal put a lot of money into Lily Pons's publicity and whatever. They never made it back in her record sales. Um, eventually, she went to Columbia, and though they did, were sad to see her go because she was a big star, they were losing money on her. It was a star system, it, just like a Hollywood star system. So if you weren't one of those 1%, <laughs> you probably weren't doing all that well. There was only room for so many people. On the other hand, there were so many more orchestras. As you know now, there are, uh, there are a lot of them dying, so there were there were places for lesser-known soloists. A St. Louis symphony, which was not a very big symphony in those days, would not feel the need to have Heifetz. They could have somebody else. Although, you know, there were so many violin stars, Milstein, Chrysler, and you, know, you name it. There was a little competition in, say, the violin and piano repertoire, but there was maybe room for a cellist, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So yeah, it, it, it's a much broader field now. And in those days, you were either a soloist, you were nothing. Chamber music was barely existed. And, and this guy is absolutely, uh, he's just nasty about chamber music. You know, it's all these people who think chamber music is where it is and oh, their nose is in the air and all this stuff. Not realizing that being in a chamber concert is a pretty much a one-on-one -on -one experience. You're close to the musicians, there's not the distance there is with a soloist or an orchestra, both physically and emotionally. Could you really go backstage and see Yo-Yo Ma or 
no, you can't. You're not going to be allowed backstage unless your name is on the list. Whereas at a chamber concert, you can quickly become friends. If you're a chamber music aficionado, you can quickly become friends with the musicians. You know how many quartets, oh, our, we have these friends in St. Louis. Oh, we have these friends in, in Washington. Oh, and it really is a friendship. People follow you and you get to know them and that's the way it is. It's different in chamber music. But hold on, Judy, we don't want to let the word out because it's going to become just throngs and throngs of people now after listening to this podcast. <laughs> well, I remember in, in uh, Toronto, Italy, when my husband was in a string quartet and backstage were all the presenters and all the whatever. And then, as you know, in Italy now, you've done your concert, which started late and went on. And now you're leaving the hall and you're going to go out and start eating at two in the morning and you're going to eat most of the night and drink leaving the stage door and this is like almost an hour after the concert there were these kids uh these teenagers you know would you sign my program high school kids and college kids and younger some of them on bicycles <laughs> so there are places where it's it's still like that but not so much in the united states so with all this change then that you were talking about, this obvious reduction of salaries and more of a dis distribution of fame, I guess, what do you think is, is the next step or where do you think we're currently headed then, both with concerts but also with recording? You know, I have no idea. I really have no idea. Certainly the internet is changing everything. I don't know whether it's for the good or the bad. You can distribute your music instantly, but it's generally going to be for free. So are artists just expected to give away their art? A visual artist would not be expected to give away their art, but musicians are expected to, and that's not a good thing, I don't think. I wonder if there's going to be a kind of um, a move towards seeking out quality, because I think with the advent of the internet, there was, again, so much available, so much, pretty much anything you could access with a few clicks. But I'm sort of thinking about like reviews, for example. We don't have so many big journals anymore. A lot of the, the big newspapers don't have full-time classical critics anymore. So there's been a move towards a lot of amateur blogs and people sort of reviewing concerts who might not have the background to explain what happened in a way other than just their opinion. Now on the internet, you're finding more good critics available online. And I'm wondering also with recording, if there might be some sort of like a, an outlet for quality versus quantity. What, what do you think? First of all, I do think that the bloggers are in many ways better critics than some of the people who are in print. <laughs> you know, there's one critic for the major New York newspaper who brags that she doesn't know anything about music and she doesn't write very well either so you know so if you want to know about what's going on in the opera world for instance there are bloggers who go to amore opera performances in new york you know it's a little opera company in new york and report back hey there's this new star on the horizon look out for so and so and they do it out of passion and knowledge you can find really good, knowledgeable criticism on the internet. You can also find a lot of schlock. As far as the quality versus quantity, I hope that that's true. Certainly, the bloggers can point you in the direction of, hey, I heard this, and, oh, well, <laughs> then, there, then there's the very informal one. The guy who cuts our hair goes to this local bar in New York. And one, and it's owned by a guy who's a jazz nut. 
No, this is this is absolutely true. And so they decided, well, they had listened to, I don't know, some standard played by various people. And Michael said, why don't we listen to Beethoven's Seventh? Everybody bring in a Beethoven's Seventh. And so they spent a night in the bar comparing Beethoven's Seventh performances. Carlos Kleiber won, and you should know. <laughs> I mean, this is New York bar. No, this isn't going to happen anywhere else. Um, there's that kind of thing can happen on the internet. Somebody can say, hey, my friends and I, had, we compared uh, Opus 131s, and here's what we think. Yeah. And, and, but it's also social media. All your friends can turn you on to things, you know, if you trust your friends' opinions about classical music. Some of mine I do, and some I don't. I have one good friend who tends to send me kind of new agey things. And, oh, all right, <laughs> you know, because that's her thing. But uh, no explaining to her that, well, this just doesn't get the needle off. The, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, make the needle move at all. I don't know. I really don't know where we're going. I'm interested to find out. Well, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to, to talk with me. And, you know, we have another recording session tomorrow, so... <laughs> so, um, so be kind to the viola player, okay? No, I tend to turn off the viola mic entirely. <laughs> Thanks. Except there's a viola mic. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any comments, I would love to hear them. So drop me an email at innervoicepodcast at yahoo.com. That's all one word, innervoicepodcast at yahoo.com. Goodbye.